I'm Tyler. I'm Megan. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Megan. Hey, Tyler. We're back. We're back. It's been kind of a long time, and I'm happy to be getting back into it. And I am sorry. I have, I've been getting some questions about where the episodes are, and uh, we're, we're getting back on track here. Are they coming? Are those coming over text or are we getting those on Instagram? No, this is text. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> really interesting <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, we it's it's a crazy time of the year. And I feel like, you know, when you have a podcast uh by two literature professors, just <laughs> look at what point in the semester we are and you will understand how stressed out <laughs> or uh, overwhelmed we might be. Um uh yeah, I got stacks of papers that I'm putting off so that I can record with you. Yes. And this is kind of an epic, uh, I feel like this is a big episode. This is a big episode. At least in the, in the like narrative of the show. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because this is sort of the thing. Okay, so we're on season three, episode seven, branch closing. And so this is the, finally coming to a head, basically, the fear that's been in place since the very beginning of downsizing. Right. Yeah. Like, it's something we've been talking about the whole series basically mm-hmm. right yeah um which is kind of fun like in a way i didn't know if they would ever pay this off yeah um, yeah but before yeah, we, it's come out before we dive in um yeah any revisions and or regrets on your part i do i do i've got two these are kind of in the omissions slash regrets category so first of all i said in our last episode about our tattoo question from Andy that was so great that I failed to put sufficient thought into. And I wanted to come back, think some more and come up with what tattoo I would like. And I have arrived at a decision and there is a later episode. I can't even remember which season this is in, but it is when Michael goes out, he's feeling very upset This is actually, he has gotten roasted by everyone in the office and he goes out and he's feeling really down and he's sitting out on a park bench and throwing bread to birds (laughs) and he's sort of leaning down a little bit and his body language looks sad and in trying to feed birds rather than breaking into little pieces, he's just throwing out full slices of bread and they're on the ground. So I want a tattoo that is an outline basically of so i want it really simple an outline of michael scott's sad posture and these slices of bread on the ground oh my god that i (laughs) i want you to get that so much i i love this concept i will think about it i'll have to have somebody draw it up for me well it is. I did look. Is this available as a tattoo? Someone has gotten. Did not find any any content. Nice. Doesn't nice. mean it's not. Doesn't mean it's not there. But what I wanted was, can I get a visual on this? Right. Right. Yet. So. So yeah, you find that to be an acceptable, acceptable tattoo. Uh, I think it's brilliant. I also I like the the melancholy. Yeah. In yeah. it as well as the the there's something very silly at the same time um, (laughs) which feels like the appropriate vibe for uh, an office tattoo (laughs) have you thought more about your dwight bobblehead 
Uh, no, but I was just looking back at our Instagram uh-huh. um, exchanges and there were a few that had been, I think possibly Andy had sent these to me or others, but the three that I sent you that I'm just looking at now, one was the, um, and if you want to find this, uh, you can look up, I guess, Dunder Mifflin Tattoos mm-hmm. um, on Instagram. Um, and in any case, uh, the one of Angela's face splitting open with like cats crawling out <laughs> is incredible and a nightmare um, to me. Uh, then the other two, one was of Michael um, kissing Oscar, which I really love. <laughs> um and then, of course, uh, a little pretzel, and it says, live every day like pretzel day. Um, <laughs> I think something like that would be the way I would want to go, like maybe less literal, mm-hmm. uh, like, but more, um, you know, I don't know, like reference yeah. a line or a moment, but I'd have to think more about, mm-hmm. it would definitely have to be Chili's related, I think. Some, I think good. I think that's a good call. Somehow. I still think you and I need to go to Chili's and record an episode of this podcast. We, but, we definitely do need to do that. I did see one. So as, as I was looking into this some more, I saw one online that I really liked. It was on forearm and it was just a simple outline of clouds and a Michael Scott quote. You have no idea how high I can fly. <laughs> <laughs> What's the um, quote that he has of Wayne Gretzky, but it's Michael Scott. What's that? Oh, one? yes. You miss 100% of the shots you can't take. Maybe <laughs> <Michael> Scott. <laughs> Maybe that one. Maybe that one. On, that on, would be a good one. That would definitely be a good one too. <laughs> I like you that. said you had a you had two omissions. Is that right? I did. Yeah. So the other was we talked some about Michael's dancing at Diwali, mm. and I started to think a little bit. And this was because I found myself repeatedly watching the video of Michael dancing on the booze cruise. Mm. It got me thinking about the connection between these. And on the booze cruise, he's got this. I was thinking about Michael's dancing style, and it's very large, it's very energetic, it involves big movements with the arms and with the legs. And when he's doing the dance and he's trying to learn the dance, so he doesn't know, he, he doesn't fully know it yet that they're doing, but he's following along at Diwali and trying to do the dance. I looked up the song and I believe it's it's in a Bollywood movie. So I think it's Bollywood dance. But I think that that dancing style that is very big, very expressive, very joyful, very fun is really fitting for Michael. And mm. so I just, as, as I was thinking back to how important Michael thinks the dance is, <laughs> that this was an important moment for him. Oh, I like that. Um, yeah, this I'm like excited to kind of keep an eye on future Michael dance parties or dance moments. Um, yeah, there will be more. Oh, good. And to compare them. Um, I thought I thought a lot about that scene because I'm still kind of confused if he's just doing it for the first time, like he's doing it really well. (laughs) And And I kind of I actually so there's there's a regret. I felt like I described him as not doing it well. Because he's not as good as the people around him. Right, right. Actually is doing quite a good job for... And just relative to... Relative, yeah, yeah. But I did, I well, because one thing that we had, I still am confused about what Carol's reaction is mm-hmm. to it. Um, and we were kind of like, well, it's not like 
you know, it, yeah, I don't know. I just kept thinking about that. Like, is she kind of cringing that he's inserting himself? Is she su- surprised that he's actually pretty good at it? Is she bewildered? Is it like, I just, I still don't know um, <laughs> her reactions, but I have a, I have a revision and a regret, a regret that is a revision and a revision that is a regret, let's say. Okay, okay, um, let's hear it. Well, okay, so after we finished recording, I had grown concerned that like, we had had our most intense conflict on the podcast yet. I was really nervous to re-listen to it because I was like, <laughs> did Megan and I just have our first fight? Like, is this, you know, can we get over this? You know, and it was over the question of Stanford's uh, office design. Is it basically the debate came down to is Stanford like more elite than um, Scranton, right? Yeah. And, let me just mention, you sent me a text earlier today that I found mildly threatening. You said, be prepared to reopen the Stanford set debate. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, we'll reopen it. <laughs> and I don't think that I responded saying like, no, don't worry. Yeah, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, I was like, well, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Live, live in fear. Um, no, I... Uh, well, so I, it was very much on my mind as I was watching this episode, but also as I re-listened to our conversation and I went back and I re-watched like, you know, the clips of Stanford in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. And I I don't like to be wrong. Um, <laughs> and so I'm not. <laughs> but, but I do think I would revive, I regret and <laughs> how how much I was committed to the idea that Stanford is like better off in some way. Oh, see, I thought that was great. I, I liked fighting on the podcast. Oh no, I enjoyed that too. We're definitely going to fight some more, but okay. I just meant, I definitely was like, oh, I kind of was more convinced by your argument. I was like, the more I looked at the various things, I was like, this, it looks different, but not massively different. Mm-hmm. Cause I was kind of making the case that they are, um, that we're meant to get the idea that they're, like somehow more fancy and Mm -hmm. on the one hand you could maybe maybe make the case that because stanford initially here is doing better and scranton's going to close but even then they say like oh it's not actually about numbers and so we don't even know that stanford is doing better financially Mm -hmm. um so yeah looking at the set design this time i was like okay it all comes down to me for one thing that pops up in this episode. And I needed to know if you, because you've watched the show so much in Stanford, we see this like frosted glass that says Dunder Mifflin on it. And is there a similar thing? It's Granton or not. Cause that to me was the one thing that distinguished it. Oh, that was like the real mark of classiness for you. That, and then also I wasn't sure if the chairs are better because as I was I was trying to watch and it looked like Stanford had nicer chairs, but I couldn't tell for sure. And so I wanted to circle back around and see if you had a defense of the of the frosted glass. Tell you're throwing a lot of great questions out here. So the frosted glass, I don't think there's any frosted glass at Dunder Mifflin. There is the Dunder Mifflin that's on the window by the front door, but I do not believe it's frosted. I think it's just regular glass. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so that is a little different. I noticed the receptionist for the first time. They appear to have a male receptionist. 
Um, Wait, I talked over you. Say that last part. They appear to have a male receptionist at Stanford. Oh, interesting. He was wearing a suit. Uh, I feel like I was I was trying to pay more attention, get a little bit better sense of the layout. In terms of the chair comparison, I'm not sure. That's something I'm going to have to revisit. Well, if people want to write into us uh, with your takes on whether Scranton and Stanford are, are meaningfully distinct or not, uh, let us know. I'm, but I, I, I have to say, you persuaded me. Re-listening to the debate, I was like, yeah, I kind of, I see your point. And I also think they needed to distinguish the two, or they chose to distinguish the two, but that doesn't necessarily signify as class. Well, Tyler, th that takes me, we're going to have to jump back and forth a little bit between the receptionist desk and revisions and regrets, because oh. that takes me to a message that is related to this from <laughs> our friend of the pod, Nick. Can we go? Can we go to the receptionist desk? Let's go to the receptionist desk, and then we can go back to the accounting corner. Okay. Okay. So Nick writes, I'm about halfway through the Diwali episode, and I had two more thoughts. First of all, love that Nick lost to send feedback before he's finished an episode. First of all, I think Stanford is intended to appear more fancy. Oh! Nick is with you on this one. I take back every, I regret, I revise my regret, my revision. No. I regret it a little bit too soon. So <laughs> he says it is intended to appear more fancy because it is a Connecticut office versus Pennsylvania. Mm. And I, potentially the perception of many. Tyler may not be included that Connecticut is a fancier state on average than Pennsylvania. Wait, Tyler may not be. I think this was a voice texting scenario. <laughs> Taylor may not be. Tyler may not be something aware. I don't know. He may not agree that Connecticut is a fancier state on average than Pennsylvania, but he thinks that that is kind of the impression. And that's an interesting point. So that's showing up in the office furniture, Tyler. How do you respond to this support from the public? Well, Nick, I appreciate you uh, coming through for me. Um, I do think Megan made a really strong case uh, <laughs> about those blinds. Those really stood out for me. And the fake wood upon rewatch, I was like, oh, okay. okay. Megan, <laughs> Megan has points. And um, my favorite part of our debate was when I remember you were like, you're mistaking the like the clothing that they wear, like you're conflating the two. Uh -huh. And at the time I was like, no, I'm not. And then re-watching it a little bit, I was like, oh, I am, damn it. Like <laughs> Megan's a good, <laughs> Megan's a better close reader. Um, but I will say that Nick is right. I hadn't thought at all about how Connecticut signifies. And in this episode, I mean, we don't really get any sense of Connecticut, but um, Jim mentions that it's like 40 minutes from New York City or something, right? It's closer. And so just by virtue of that, it seems like it has a slight bit of cultural and perhaps economic uh, fanciness. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But um, thanks, Nick. Fair point. <laughs> so back to the accounting corner. You had two things and you can finish up on this one. But Oh, no, that was it. That was it for me. I didn't have another one. Oh, OK. 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 So but then, we yeah. I guess we're at receptionist desk. We should head to the office supply or the supply shelf. Oh, okay. Let's go supply shelf. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I'm going to need you to open up the chat because okay. I'm going to send you a photo. Um, let's see. Okay. So I've sent you a photo and I'm now going to read you our, a message from Eric. 
Oh, uh, Eric, are you bringing an audio visual component to yeah. your research? This is all thanks to Eric. So, um, okay. This is great. Hi, Megan and Tyler. Attached is an image of the V5 pen model with the clicker, large barrel, and rubber grip above the point. This model might be good for those with arthritis or other hand issues, but the stick version has been enlightening for me. Huh. Before I move on, do you want to, uh, any any comments or thoughts on? So let me give the listeners a little visual description of this. So this is the Pilot Precise V5 RT Retractable Rolling Ball Pins Extra Fine Point. So it does have more the appearance of the G2. And really, I feel like the fine point that comes out of it is the biggest distinction. It also appears, it's a little hard to tell because it's kind of silver on the front. It appears to have the clip, you know, where you could kind of mm. put it to your shirt or whatever. Is this one, is this one retractable? Yes, it says, I just read that in the title. It is retractable. I will say I have never seen a fine point like that, that was retractable. So this is a really interesting development in pen technology. I have to say, I wonder, and and uh, Eric, you'll have to follow up with us and let us know, but this looks like it could, I mean, on the one hand, I don't love the um, the thickness, perhaps, but it could solve my problems potentially with getting ink everywhere in the bed, on the dog, like in my bag, um, et cetera. Dog. Yeah. Toby had some blue on him the other day and Jen was like, what happened? And I was like, I think I got pen on Toby. Um, Let me ask you this. If you're falling asleep with the pen open right. and you're not putting the cap on, do you think you're going to click it? <laughs> the disdain in your voice makes me think, no. <laughs> it just feels like it, it does depend. You can't put all of your faith in the pen to do all the work for you. You have to do a little work in closing the pen even in this one. I still am chuckling when you said it was user error. I was like, yeah. um, okay, I'm going to read the rest of Eric's message. Uh, I grew up with some family members who despised anything academic, such as appreciating art, reading fiction, or expressing oneself through writing. They often complained that professors were communists who warped young, impressionable minds. On a positive note, at least they didn't believe in getting married with the bride and groom standing in shallow graves. The, the only writing Dwight implements... Reference. Wait, what'd you say? It's a Dwight reference. Yep. Uh, the only writing implements I ever saw at home were old pencils and big ballpoints. For most hmm. of my life, I used whatever pen was laying around often one from a hotel. I always felt my handwriting was lousy. Now with a proper pen, it looks much better. I'm gripping the pen lightly. Writing is enjoyable. Cheers to the supply shelf, all-inclusive, Eric. And <laughs> I just want to add one more bit uh, because I think I had said or at some point on the um, pod like about Eric's sign-off, and he added in a in a, in a message. I've decided I've decided to go with all inclusive for my closing. Of course, it refers to Michael's trip to Jamaica, but more importantly, it captures my belief that as long as they are not hurting other people, all Americans should be treated with inclusivity, appreciation, and respect. We really all are. We really are all in this together as citizens of the USA. Huh. I thought that was very, very lovely and it sweet. Is. 
Yeah. And so original. You so rarely have an original sign off. That's really cool. This, it's also just really interesting to think about how your upbringing affects your perception of skills yes. and pens. Yes. And I actually, I can relate to the, the thing about having pens from hotels because I often, if I ever go to a hotel and there's a pen available, I will take it. But I often don't love it, but I feel like I have to use it. You know, I have to fully use it up. I'm like, why am I going to go buy more pens when I have these mediocre pens at home that I can use? And so I think I feel some internal dilemma over that. Mm. It's interesting to the point about handwriting, about how it affects your handwriting. I love that line. Writing is enjoyable yeah. like, because the because using the pen is pleasurable in some way. And I was like, oh, I love that. Yeah. It actually makes you think about all of the different factors that go into writing and how you feel about writing. Mm -hmm. And that include, because we don't often think about the physical and tactile components of it, but those really are part of it. The other thing that really resonated for me here was just uh, partly because of my own family history, but Eric mentioning, I grew up with some family members who despise anything academic, such as appreciating art, reading fiction, or expressing oneself through writing. Yeah, uh, I had the same kind of situation with some family members and still do. Um, and so I just really relate to that idea. And uh, there's something really still like very powerful for me in even just like the fact that we get together and do a podcast where we like overthink or my family would call it overthinking you know <laughs> but I'm like we're not even thinking hard enough about the office like there's still so much more to say and um but that kind of like you know it's it's just interesting how you know there can be a kind of culture in a family around either ideas or or art or reading um even expressing oneself in writing and then how you deal with that later, you know, is, I don't know. It's just an interesting thing to me. And, and it reminded me that I, I went through a journey like that myself. And I sometimes forget that my students, for example, might be showing up to class, you know, having a whole lifetime of voices in their head saying like dismissive or worse things about, about writing and thinking. And uh, anyway, so I really appreciated Eric reminding us of, of yeah. that struggle. Yeah. And look at Eric as this writer of beautiful emails. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yeah, I'm impressed. I am impressed. Well, thank you, Eric, uh, as always, for your messages. And if anybody would like to email us, either the supply shelf, the receptionist desk, uh, or if you want to pitch us on a new... <laughs> uh, you know, segment or whatever, um, email us at the best office hours podcast at gmail.com. Right. So I actually have two more items for the receptionist desk. If we can right. go back scroll there. back there. Yeah, scroll back there. Uh, so this is one more item also from Nick, who says, when it comes, this is about the office tattoo ideas. He writes, I really like the original thought of the foot in the George Foreman grill. However, what about just putting grill marks on the top of your right <gasps> foot? Like the scarring grill marks of having the foot actually have been grilled. I would, that's the kind of thing I would do. That's <laughs> what I'm talking about. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant. I think that is an incredible, incredible tattoo idea. <laughs> wow. Wow. 
Can you imagine the payoff when occasionally someone sees it? Yeah. Yeah. it and asks you about it. <laughs> I have a I have like a cutesy version of the little um face hugger from the movie Alien on my arm and uh everybody thinks it's a scorpion which really bothers me for some reason. <laughs> I'm like no, it's much nerdier than that and um and not as cool, but occasionally uh I'll be in class or you know like at the grocery store and somebody will know what it is and they're like oh my god is that this and i'm like yes and it is such a gratifying experience so but if yeah. you were to get that tattoo you'd have to wear like sandals a lot right <laughs> well don't forget nick thinks that uh nice <laughs> leather sandals are good for uh business business wear that's right i forgot about <laughs> that office. so there you go <laughs> oh i see like carhartt uh, everywhere now oh, and I'm yeah. like so embarrassed that I didn't know what it was uh, a few weeks or well months ago at this point but now I'm like oh yeah I knew what it was I just didn't know that was what yeah. it was seeing the world in a new way so that's that that's it that's it on tattoos I also talked to my friend Shohini who is from India and has experience and knowledge with Diwali and she just had so many fascinating things to say about this episode and up. I cannot possibly pack them all into this. So partly I just want to say I feel so ignorant. <laughs> like there is so much more there. She just saw so much in it. And so there is so much more that could be said with a focus on that. Um, one thing that's just that was interesting is that there are really there are some like, different traditions and different approaches to celebrating Diwali in different parts of India. And so in the show, they actually kind of mixed some of those. But one thing she said was that, um, you know, when they're in, in Michael's Indian cultural seminar, she mentioned that white guy actually had a good description. So talking about Dwight's and huh. just pointing out the way it was interesting that Dwight, as this white American guy, is the one who really has a better description of it than Kelly. Uh. And Kelly not, you know, having this kind of natural inherent knowledge of Diwali. So Dwight, Dwight had some, had some pretty good things to say about it. So that was one of the things. Um, the other thing she pointed out about the Indian cultural seminar was that all of his examples in his PowerPoint are Indian Americans. And yeah, <laughs> so that was just another um, kind of interesting thing. So like the Nobel Prize winner who he points out and whose name I'm going to not say correctly, I don't think, but um, uh, Subramanian Chandrasekhar, mm -hmm. an American, and she was like, there are lots of Indian Nobel Prize winners. So there are many, like even just kind of in that category, there are many people he could have chosen from, you know, to represent Indian success at the Nobel level. Right. Uh, so that was a fun, fun, interesting detail. So here is, here is this, I've got some more, a little bit more I'm going to read. And this is about at Diwali related to Michael's singing. So the final sequence of the Diwali episode ends with Michael singing and the Indians politely clapping and encouraging. For me, the scene reveals how Kelly's family has been welcoming to all these white people, even though at the moment Michael hijacked their party. Yeah. Yet these people only have managed to repay that hospitality 
um, or so the white people have only managed to repay their hospitality by putting on a show of shitty things white people do at Diwali celebrations. <laughs> that episode is so hilarious. Oh my god, I love it. And the I had one other point. Oh yeah, the other other thing was about um, the representation. So you know, we talked some about Michael and his his interest. Well, in both. Um, Kama Sutra in his presentation and in the marriage of Kelly's parents. And so Shohini and I talked about these ideas about India and the kind of representations of India as both kind of exotic, erotic, but also this place um, where Westerners go to unlock Eastern, the secrets of Eastern wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so it was that really helped me help me think through more the way it's doing both of those things. So it's got that kind of eroticized vision as well as the idea of Eastern wisdom and the fact that it's a failed narrative of the pursuit of that, because we have a lot of stories like eat, pray, love kinds of things, you know, mm -hmm. where like the Westerner goes East and finds enlightenment, whether it is sexual or spiritual or, whatever mm -hmm. and michael tries both of those paths and fails you know so he tries to get the kind of marital wisdom from kelly's parents and his proposal fails and he offers her he asks her to uh, share this book with him read the kama sutra and she rejects that so he doesn't get it's like a, a failed narrative of getting that's those great. things. isn't that great that's a brilliant brilliant reading yeah so i just thought that was very insightful. Also mentioned, and this, I thought afterward, I was like, oh, I should have looked up and see if Mindy Kaling wrote this one. She did write it. I saw that too. Her parents, Kelly's parents in the show are Mindy Kaling's actual parents. I love that. Yeah. So lots of fun, fun material. And that is all I have for receptionist desk. So should we head on over and start our discussion of this episode? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so this is Season 3, Episode 7, Branch Closing. With news of Scranton's branch closing, the team envisions alternative futures. Michael and Dwight try to save the day. Where do you want to start? I feel like I want to start with a really random question for you, Tyler. That is, how do you feel about the fact that Dwight sends Davis Wa David Wallace Christmas cards? <laughs> This is such a fun fact to learn about Dwight. He's got, so he has David Wallace, CFO's address in his phone. Michael asks why. It's because he sends him Christmas cards. And Michael says something like, you've never met the man you send him Christmas cards? And he says, yeah, that way if someday we meet, we'll have something to talk about. I thought it was brilliant. Honestly, I was like, that's a good strategy. Uh, on the other hand, you know, like much of Dwight's... Uh, choices like you know slightly creepy and potentially menacing you know <laughs> like yes. to get a to get a, a christmas card from somebody that you don't know on the other hand if it's like you know you're a you're a cfo or whatever right like do you just get tons of corporate cards that are meaningless mm -hmm. from all kinds yeah. of people so you don't know anyway but i also laughed at the idea that okay so you finally meet him and like you're somehow going to say um hey remember that card i sent you like that would be your your small talk <laughs> like what would you say 
Yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel like it actually solves the problem of giving you good content to discuss when you meet. Yeah, what did you think about it? Just that it was a delightful detail. <laughs> and I think you're right that Dwight does walk a line between brilliant and what was the gosh what was the word you used creepy <laughs> it wasn't creepy it wasn't threatening but it was something in that category menacing menacing yes between brilliant and menacing and it's just so weird but it's great he just you know dwight is good at being prepared and just having information on hand and that is information that he has got so uh, I mean, I thought it was a nice uh, compliment to his, like, going through the trash. Um, <laughs> and he just seemed yeah. to have uh, um, plastic gloves on him for this purpose. <laughs> I love that they're both dressed in, like, trench coats. Um, yeah. And envision themselves as, like, Michael Moore documentary. That really felt very uh, of the time. Yes, yes. So that, while we're on that, because I've just thrown us way out of the the sequence of things by bringing this up but i'm here for it they go to david wallace's house because they are trying to save the branch once they've gotten the news that it's going to close and they're basically like staking the place out and just sitting out there because david's not home so they're just waiting on his front steps basically all day long when they walk up to the door they start walking to the door the first time and so they've got the cameras behind them. It really would feel like you're in a Michael Moore documentary. But one of my favorite things is when, as they're walking up, Michael says, this is what Michael Moore does. Famu famous um, documentarian. I knew you would <laughs> <Yes. laughs> You know, that's my kind of thing. But in this case, his mistake as he's struggling to say documentarian and he says documentarian, I feel like was actually this brilliant error where he's combining documentarian and contrarian, both a, like a fitting combination for Michael Moore. And so, I don't know, I just get a kick out of those things. I know that you do. I wrote that down in my notes. I was like. Megan is going to love this, is what I Loved wrote down. <laughs> Loved um, it. Whereas I liked uh, his reference to bowling for Columbine. He didn't like it as much because he thought it was <laughs> yes. a movie about bowling like Kingpin. <laughs> yes. Um, it's yeah, a that's, critique. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, since we're, should we talk a little bit more about the, the Dwight and Michael of it all? Or do you want to circle out to the whole premise? I guess maybe for clarity, we should go back to the whole premise. All right. So um, the episode begins. Uh, well, let's do the cold open just really yeah, quick. Yeah, it's, it's brief. It's contained. Mm -hmm. But um, basically, Jim has been sending notes to Dwight as future Dwight. Mm -hmm. um, and in the one uh, I'll just I'll just read it into the record. I don't have a ton of contact with the Scranton branch, but before I left, I took a Dwight of a box of Dwight stationery. So from time to time, I send Dwight faxes from himself from the future. Dwight, at 8 a.m. today, someone poisons the coffee. Do not drink the coffee. More instructions will follow. Cordially, future Dwight. <laughs> um, and what I wrote down there was cordially that. <laughs> like because if Dwight is reading these 
faxes, then they have to be written in a style that Dwight would believe his future self would write in. And so this must be believable to Dwight as his own idiom. Um, and uh, and so I just really enjoyed that this is how Dwight would write to himself. Uh, but yeah, what do you have thoughts on um, the cold open here? Yeah, I hated it. What? This is the kind of thing. Well, I love this. <laughs> this is the kind of thing where I find Jim so annoying. Why? I just think that this is an obnoxious prank. I do not think it's funny. I don't even know for him. It, it's a unique category of prank, the kind where you don't actually see the outcome. I guess you just get the pleasure of imagining it happening. Mm. Because Dwight, if Dwight doesn't put it together that it's Jim, then he also can't even follow up and yell at him. And so Jim doesn't get the pleasure of his anger. He just gets the pleasure of imagining what's happening to Dwight. But this is where I just found Jim a little too smug, a little too self-satisfied. And so I did not love it. This in my, for cold opens, this is one that is not, this is like low on my, low on my list. But I will say that your point about the writing makes it more interesting in thinking about it as an exercise in writing in someone else's voice. I, it's just interesting, you know, doing this podcast and learning about you because <laughs> I feel like I'm always coming for Jim and I'm always like ready to dismiss him. And you're like, no, 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 no. And like, I never in a million years that I thought this would be the one thing that Jim does <laughs> that's like reads as smug. And, um, Cause like, I didn't like that he was biking to work. <laughs> and so I don't know why this works for me because the other thing I've been complaining about is the show getting too zany. And you didn't think this was too zany? I, I mean, it is truly zany. And yet for some reason it really made me laugh. I think, I don't know. I like time travel. <laughs> <laughs> okay this this makes sense for you tyler i don't know why i didn't see that so maybe so maybe it's uh like, maybe like it's that then the rules of reality is tyler's kind of like <laughs> i also think it's so incredibly stupid as a as a prank i mean i guess that's like part of the problem and the pleasure of it for me is like it's so dumb why would dwight believe this and I'm mm -hmm. like, I guess that's because Dwight is so dumb. Like, that's truly what we're meant to think. And the episode really hammers that home with Dw Dwight's, like, not being able to interpret what, you know, what Jan possibly could have said <laughs> to Michael. And then him putting up with Michael being so mean to him. And Dwight comes off as very, like, dopey and sweet, you know, by the end of mm -hmm. the episode. Um, uh, you know, his his believing that... He would put coffee grounds in the trash to cover cocaine, <laughs> you know, and then revealing by the end um, that one of his favorite memories is in is a sweet intimacy with Michael. Yeah. You know, so so anyway, this this episode is like, I don't know, like presenting Dwight in a in a different light. And uh, but that opening really like ex suspends disbelief that he's this stupid um and yet yeah. whatever for whatever reason it made me laugh and i think it's because of attacking stanley i i don't know something so funny <laughs> about wanting to save stanley yeah that's true he was he did care he did really show his care for stanley in attacking him to 
save him from the apparently poisoned coffee. There's a mix here, it seems like, of Dwight and his intelligence. And I'm wondering if in this case, it's just that he wants to believe. Much like yourself, Tyler, he wants to believe in the possibility of time travel and of a future Dwight writing to him. Right. So I think the desire to believe makes him vulnerable to be tricked. Because later, when he and Michael are waiting in front of David Wallace's house, and Michael says, okay, let's role play. You be Wallace. And he walks up and he is basically making this argument. So Michael's coming in and saying, why are you closing our branch? And he's making an argument for why the branch should be closed. And basically, he's very persuasive. Yeah, it's a good argument. He has this kind of big picture understanding. And he says at some point, look, the whole business model of a small regional paper company simply doesn't make sense anymore. And so I think... I think we see some kind of sharpness in Dwight's thinking there, even though he wants, obviously, his whole goal is to save the branch, but he's making a good pitch for why they shouldn't. I really love that scene for a few reasons, but among them is uh, he tells Michael not to improv. He's like, that's a terrible idea. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. has, 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 has um, Dwight seen Michael's improv? Um, <laughs> does he know about his improv classes? But in any case, I just thought, that was uh, an interesting line. And then, um, yeah, when he calls Michael Scott, he says, like, listen, yes. <laughs> I don't know why it really made me laugh. But yes. yeah, no, Dwight offers like a perfectly reasonable thing. And Michael's like, he's not going to say any of that. And he's like, why wouldn't he? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> um, but the one, this is a very random thing. And I can't imagine that the answer is yes. But have you ever seen the movie? The Hateful Eight by Quentin Tarantino. No. Okay. So uh, it's like a Western murder mystery kind of, and uh, a great deal of it takes place in one um, kind of I, like, I don't even know what you call it, like in or something, you know, and uh, at a pivotal moment, somebody poisons the coffee um, and it like caught, it's the thing that like, brings you know the action to a climax and reveals all kinds of stuff that's happening and i oh. just as i was watching this i was like did quentin tarantino steal that idea from the office <laughs> um because uh why what year was the quentin tarantino movie oh man i don't know uh hateful eight let's see 2015 after this oh wow oh you know could be hey um in question of influence but then jan levinson arrives uh to give some unfortunate news um but michael he loves to start his morning with a hearty bowl of jan yes was that a line you found charming or annoying because i'm always surprised which ones <laughs> there are certain lines in your house that like you find annoying uh -huh. that your partner says and sometimes ones that you like right and i can't remember the exact ones. something about popcorn yeah. Yes, please. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's the annoying one. I hate that one. <laughs> so I do find this line to be <laughs> annoying, a little revolting. <laughs> I notice there's a theme in because Michael also says to Pam at some point, I'll just have a, a bowl of candied Pams or something, you know, a Pam with a side of candied Pams. I can't remember what it is, but he's using her name and doing this similar thing like he's going to eat pams or jans or whatever Gross. so 
I don't know what to make of that, but Michael really does seem to like to turn women's names into foods that he's going to consume. And then he starts singing. Yep. So all of this is annoying until, until Jan tells him the branch is closing, the board voted for it or something, and Michael asks, on whom's authority? I wrote this in my notes. Another one of my things. I love it. On whom's authority? So a couple of things. I, if I had the opportunity, and if I were to gain enough influence in the world of English studies, I would ban whom. I would outlaw it. I think that is the stupidest rule, the distinction between who and whom. It always sounds pretentious. I cannot, in spoken language, even if I know it's supposed to be a whom, I cannot bring myself to use it. And in writing, I'll try to write my way around it. I'll try to avoid it. So if in my if in an email I've constructed a sentence that's going to require a whom, I will try to rewrite the sentence in a different way so that the who can be the subject, not the object of the sentence. Oh my god, I love this. And so there's something like in the pretentiousness of whom, there's this move to kind of overcorrect and the move of, you know, using whom instead when it is actually supposed to be who. And so I just think that Michael's overcorrection here like in his trying to be really grammatically proper and then being wrong is hilarious um i love that moment and i also the joke is great like on whom's authority the boards what <laughs> like um and but i have to tell you that is a thing i've sometimes like been confused about i'm like i don't understand the relationship between the board and like the ceo and like you know even at the university you know it's like you've got the president you know or we have a chancellor as well of the whole system but then mm -hmm. there's also like a board appointed by the governor or something i don't know i should know this i'm gonna regret all of this but i just i actually sympathize with michael's question about like wait how do they just have the authority and it's like oh right i guess they just yeah. own the company um yeah but one thing I did want to, I mean, we'll come back around to this question of management and labor, but I just wanted to ask you uh, 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 about this. Jan says, I'm very sorry. I don't relish telling you this. Hmm. Is that true? Ooh, good question. Man, I feel like I'm, I feel like I got to go back and watch her face in this more closely. I don't think she does relish it. But I think it might be less potentially. I don't know if I'm ready to commit to this, but let me propose it. Let me propose one reading here that she does not relish it, but not because of a concern for Michael's feelings so much as the fact that it is really unpleasant to have to do that and to have to deal with Michael. That's oh, I like that reading of the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's like it's not really. Like, oh, this, I understand this hurts you. And so this is painful. I think it's like, oh God, I'm going to have to go deal with Michael Scott on this difficult topic. That's a good point. And he is difficult. Uh, I, I love the way that she, I just like her acting in this, the way mm -hmm. that she's like, we haven't made any financial decisions, but you're a severance package person. And then yes. his acting is amazing. Oh my God. Oh my God. I don't get it. We're not doing that bad. It's not about numbers. It's about talent. <laughs> Brutal. Oh, God. Really rough. And this is important, like, narratively, because it sets up Josh and the twist that's going to happen, which I yeah. I really can't wait to talk about. But 
So she says, our CFO believes Josh is going to play an important role in our comfort company's future. Oh, really? What role is that? King of the stupid universe. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah, I, the talent thing was really interesting because, you know, we haven't really seen much of Josh. And so we don't really have any capacity to understand what that means other than that Michael is kind of a, a, a diva of, in, of incompetence. On the other hand, he's also very successful with sales. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I wasn't sure how we were supposed to take that question of talent other than just a wounded, a wound to Michael's ego. It makes me wonder if part of the perception of Josh's talent, and again, I'm in support of Michael Scott here, if part of the potential or part of the perception of Josh's success is that he looks the part and he fills the part. Yep. So this actually goes back to our discussions of dress and of his kind of professional biker guy gear. And he, he knows how to be professional and perform professionally in a very different way. He gives different vibes, if you will, than Michael does. So Michael is not good at presenting himself in the most professional way and yet he has won i don't know the josh has won salesman of the year multiple times uh we saw on pretzel day right pretzel day when michael looks the most unprofessional and the most out of control he makes a huge sale so michael does not is in that way i wonder if that affects how his talent is perceived and that he is more talented then people read him to be because he doesn't fit the part exactly. What's interesting about that, just connecting it to things that will happen or that happen later, Andy in the Stanford office is rallying people to do chants, you know, kind of like a sports team or yeah, yeah. Frat, frat house. Yeah. And, um, and we don't know, the audience doesn't know and none of the characters know what Josh knows, which is that he's going to take a senior management position at Staples. Yeah. But his response at the time is to basically say, um, be professional. And the way that that actor reads that line, I think is very good and very effective. Um, and, you know, because as the audience, right, we don't want our characters at Scranton to lose their jobs. And so we definitely don't want to see people like, cheering for their suffering even though right like that's what capitalism's all about <laughs> is this kind of like unevenly distributed uh suffering and and exploitation and andy is merely like acknowledging that but not in the in the way that reads as professional so your argument that josh is kind of like well trained in the kind of discourse of yeah professionalism is That's really so interesting is because you know it definitely the way he looks his suit which is pinstripe his close cropped hair his mm -hmm. his biker vibes but then also the fact that he's going to fuck over both branches yeah suggests precisely like he is very talented at this professional corporate ladder and um and yeah. that that result you know when you when you have people like that it's going to result in 
fundamentally selfish behavior, but they're professional, right? Like, yes, yes, you're right. That's so. But the the discourse of a pro of corporate professionalism is such a good way of capturing Josh and what he does well, and it gets at the 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 relationship, I guess, between professionalism and maybe ethics or kind of ethical yeah work. Jim, well, so once once they Josh says that as of today, I've accepted the senior management position at Staples. It then goes to an interview with Jim and he says, say what you will about Michael Scott, but he would never do that. So Michael is terrible at the discourse of corporate professionalism, but he is going out. He is so concerned about his workers and his branch that he has very little, like he has no interest, it seems, in leveraging anything into a job at Staples. He's so committed to his workers and so he often looks terrible in it, but it seems like there's this balance or something where the guy who is the best at professionalism is not really the guy who is the best. <laughs> it turns out Michael is. Yeah, and he, he, um, I mean, that's going to be amusing in its own way. There's this, um, have you ever, you've, have you ever seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Indiana? Yeah, 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 a long time ago. Um, there's this like kind of internet meme about it basically which is that and maybe if you've heard it before stop me but basically like if indiana jones like the move the people will say like part of the problem with the script is that if indiana jones did nothing like the events of the film still would have happened exactly as they would have like the nazis would have opened up the ark they all would have died so like everything indiana jones did was for nothing and also got lots of other people killed and put them in danger and i was thinking this episode like but in a way that seems to be thinking about it or whatever is that if michael had done nothing and kept his mouth shut like (laughs) the the results still would have been the same and in fact arguably a more positive one for him um or at least in terms of perception but he doesn't he isn't capable of worrying about that in the right way and it's so anyway it's very interesting by the end of the episode he's like did we do so what did we do like yes i love can i read into the record that those lines so this is they've been staking out david's house all day and it's night the office had called before and Michael refused to pick up because he said, I'm not talking to them until I have some good news. So he didn't find out what the news was that could have brought them home. But so eventually it's night and he's kind of giving up and he says to Dwight, what are we still doing here? It's over. Let's go home. Get the car. First point. I love it that he tells Dwight to get the car. The car is on that. Street. It's like right in front of them. It's just <laughs> um so that's hilarious um but so he's kind of lamenting what's happening and he says oh this was such a stupid idea this was so stupid i am such a stupid idiot i let everybody down everybody hates me i lost everybody's jobs nobody likes me anymore so we can also see how entangled his desire to keep people their jobs which is a deep and genuine desire but how much it is also tangled up with being liked and with everybody hating him if he doesn't succeed at that but then Dwight gets the message on the phone he goes and he listens to a phone message and that's when he finds out Stanford is closed 
Scranton is still open. And so they start screaming, we did it, and jumping up and down and doing that manly chest bump move. And they're so excited. But then they pause and Michael's like, how did we do it? And I just, I, I just really think it's so funny the way that it suddenly dawns on them that they have done nothing yeah. and it doesn't make sense. So it's a story where they're trying to make this grand gesture and save the branch and it's this big adventurous story where they actually do nothing i i really love that michael's last line is i don't understand yes <laughs> nothing could be more accurate in a way um but i also i'm uh, just like really struck by the line that you read about um I let everybody down. Everybody hates me. I lost everybody's jobs. Nobody likes me anymore. And I'm just wondering if like, is the desire to be liked anti-capitalist? Hmm. Is people pleasing a, a, a socialist oh. affect? On the one hand, like capitalism does a really good, or at least like, you know, kind of contemporary consumerism does a really good job of exploiting the desire to be liked or the desire to be desired or to be thought well of or whatever 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 right like if you buy this if you look this way if you think this way then people will like you or something like that so it exploits that um but does it also nurture it like maybe only in the context of like i, I don't know i gotta think more about this but it's just really interesting that michael's desire to be liked in this case like is Un, is very unlike um, Josh's radical individualism, right? Where he's like, I don't care whether people like me or not. Like, that's the funny thing. Andy's getting them to rally around their fearless leader and to give him praise. And, you know, maybe he feels some appropriate shame, but he's mm -hmm. also kind of like, it doesn't matter to me whether you like me or not. Yeah. Uh, um, it goes to that. It, it isn't personal. It's business thing, right? Like yeah. business is just business. I think we can see there maybe a distinction between being likable and the desire to be liked because Josh seems like someone who's able to craft himself well into somebody who comes across as likable. It's mm. not, that's about the kind of being, being likable is persuasive. Being likable helps people think that you're talented and that you're good at your job and to trust you and all of that. Michael isn't very likable, but has this strong desire to be liked so that it's not about a performance of likability, but it's about really the desperate desire to be liked. And you're right. I think it really works against. Uh, hmm. I don't know. That's so that's so interesting. I'm going to keep thinking about that just because yeah. like, the desperation and the desire to be liked is like is a social desire and it's driven by this anxiety of being sort of cast out of of the social yeah. or something um yeah which and the still, desire, like, just gonna say the desire to, to build and sustain relationships mm -hmm. fundamentally limits the capacity to climb the ladder like to get out of the place you're at to cut people that you need to cut mm -hmm. you know to be without feeling in times when you need to be without feeling because when when Dwight mimics David Wallace basically 
saying like, it's not about feeling, it's not about how great your people are, just the numbers don't make sense. Mm -hmm. And so you have to remove yourself from the people and look at the numbers and Michael cannot remove himself from the people and look at the numbers. That's true. He, uh, so after he discovers the news, he, um, for example, kind of takes a nostalgia tour. Um, you know, he's like, you can't yeah. replace a Stanley or a Phyllis, you know? Um, and we see, uh, it, it, like he, it's like 30 seconds before he reveals this secret to everybody, which I have to say, I feel like I really related to that. I was like, if I were Michael, I would have a really hard time not being like, guys, did you hear this? Like, oh my God, what the hell? Yeah, yeah, that would be hard to say. Yeah, I was wondering if you'd be the same on that. It also goes to his not being professional, right? Like to be professional is to contain it. Uh, Toby wants to do. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid it might be Toby in this situation. but I did want to ask you, you know, before we go a little bit further in um, to how all the minor or not minor, but, um, you know, yeah. uh, peripheral okay. characters react. Yeah. Uh, is this the right narrative choice for the show? Like the best that I can understand it is that the show ended on a cliffhanger with Pim and Jam- Pam and Jim at season two. Mm-hmm. And then it the way it solved that problem was to separate them. And by separating them, it, you know, sort of like avoided the trap of doing more will they, won't they, which maybe could have gotten overblown or exhausting. And it um, allowed Pam to break up and therefore grow potentially as a character away from Roy or whatever, right? Like, and we got to see Jim in a new environment to some some degree although i really don't feel like we've explored that very much jim has felt very off on his own um and so it's we're seven episodes in and they're like okay we got to end this i guess and bring jim back because that's the whole like jim wants to know if pam might come to stanford and then we see the reverse of that pam wants to know if jim is coming and there are mutual reactions to that so just as a like is this the choice you would have made as like a writer of the show? Do you, yeah. Do you think it's the right choice? Hmm. To do this, like to kind of set this up as a way to bring him back. Yeah. Basically to reintegrate everybody at Scranton. Yeah. I cannot imagine myself as a writer of a show because I feel like I would be terrible at it. <laughs> That's why we're critics. We just get to, you know, we get to, I'm like, I can analyze. I want to analyze the story. I, I couldn't, couldn't create it myself. Hmm. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I mean, it's good. I think, right, we get to sort of, like you're saying, see Jim in a different scenario, in a different context. It's going to allow us to also introduce a new complicating factor into it when he goes back, bringing Karen. And it doesn't end up being too much time because it sort of feels like you can't go on I don't know maybe you could but I feel like in terms of the narrative I don't think it would be as strong to go on forever having it split between the two branches and I think it would be worse to have some people go to Stanford I don't think the office can give up its office like, I don't oh, think they can okay 
I don't think they can shut down. I think they've got to keep that location. So in terms of different approaches with the story, how to bring the characters back together, I think it has to get to bringing, um, bringing everybody back to Scranton. I think that's right. I think I agree. I think it just, I think the one thing I don't like is that it feels abrupt or something, but in the, but it's hard to tell, you know, with the temporality of our watching, you know, like if we were watching week to week, you know, there is something very delightful about the payoff of the idea that a branch needs to close finally. On the other hand, it definitely does feel like this is all just to get Jim and Pam back together to some degree. Um, Because otherwise what you would have to do, I think is start to flesh out the Stanford office. And I don't know that people want that or care like. Yeah. You'd have to have, that's interesting. And it feels like then it would get to be too much, too many people. So if we care about more than just Jim and Karen and Andy, basically it gets to be too many people. Mm. I think it becomes too huge of a cast that then it gets too just like thinly spread, I guess. It's kind of interesting to think how sitcoms have a threshold that they have, you know, like even friends, right? I'm trying to remember how many core, is it five people in friends? Um, Four or five, something like that. You know, yeah, but, so. and then you have, you definitely have, you know, oh, the guy at the coffee shop or, oh, like you have, small people that have maybe a story here or there or like a little thread but yeah you can't really because they're also not I mean that's the other thing I kept thinking about here is I was like man you really feel the difference between a sitcom and like whatever genre we have now with this um what do they call them dramedies you know um because for better or worse the show is not really going to explore the you know crushing uh fact that you might have to move states and like what happens to people's like custody agreements with their divorced spouses and like what happens to the people who's you know blah 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 like you know can't move for this that or the other you know I just kept thinking like oh my god there's a lot of suffering here that we're not getting any narrative account of um and instead and I guess this could be your you know Marx's critique of the show among a few elements of it but in fact, most people are like pretty jazzed about losing their job <laughs> and, and pretty okay with their flexibility, right? Like people are like, yeah, maybe I'll move to Pennsylvania, no big. And yeah. then it's it's Granton. Let's survey how people are reacting. Creed, he is uh, making bank by selling everything off. Uh, Meredith, she's looking to score. Um, Ryan initially put off because of his business cards, but then feels like things worked out pretty well for him. Mm-hmm. Kelly, uh, maybe the most bereft because she's <laughs> bereft is a good word. losing Ryan. Yeah. Uh, Daryl and everybody in the warehouse, including Roy, totally fine. They're keeping their jobs because Bob Vance bought the warehouse. Um, Phyllis, what do we know? about? I can't remember Phyllis's reaction. Stanley's thrilled. Stanley's thrilled. Hobie's going to move to Costa Rica and learn how to surf. Uh, Pam going to art school. Everybody's thriving. Who am I forgetting? Angela. Angela's upset. She, yeah, she and Kevin are both, they hug and he picks her up actually when they find. Yeah. What did you think about this range of reactions? Did you have, like, was there a reaction that you liked best? 
Oh, that's a great question. Well, I will just say, um, Kevin was very interested in this, interesting to me, when he hugged Angela, and then later in the episode when they're going to, are they going to poor Richards? Um, yeah, I, I think they're going to poor Richards. Did they say where they're going to go? Um, either way, uh, um, yeah, they're going, uh, he says, um, let's, I think he says, let's go Phil instead of Phyllis. And, or at least that's how I heard it on the soundtrack. And yeah. I thought, oh my God, like what an interesting, we're seeing Kevin's kind of mundane intimacy with people a little bit more. Um, even though Pam calls him buddy, which I find both a, an echo of Jim and like very patronizing. But back to your original question, um, did I have a favorite reaction? I think that Creed's is the funniest. Like it really made me laugh, but I, I, I don't know why, but I really enjoyed Kelly in this episode. So especially Kelly's reaction um, where she turns the, uh, the, the employee directory into a yearbook. I just found that hilarious and delightful and her kind of like bullying Pam into writing more uh, uh, commentary or whatever. Um, yeah. Who is your favorite reaction to the news? Well, let me tell you, I hated Creed. What? <laughs> yes. We are most different people. He is so annoying. I don't know why this just... Is this too zany for you or something? I think this is too zany. I do not... Or do you just not like property theft? <laughs> Maybe both? <laughs> it was very... No, it's just so presumptuous. Like, Creed is such an asshole. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I don't know that he just goes and immediately begins selling other people's computers. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I found it off-putting. <laughs> I agree. Kelly was great. I especially love when she's in her interview and the eyeliner is just streaming down her face. Yes. She's been crying so much. I, I think I maybe like Pam's feeling about it. Actually, I think I like her reaction in this. She says at one point, it's a blessing in disguise. Actually, not even a disguise. Um, so I kind of like, and this actually makes the whole story maybe a little bit sad for Pam because she's coming to terms with what this might mean for her. There's something hopeful about this. And it makes me think back to the Day of the Women in the Workplace seminar when she talks about her dreams and is feeling like it really wasn't her dream to be a receptionist. And so this is, there's something kind of disappointing about being stuck in this. And yet at the same time, when you have a job, it's very hard to leave it and take a big risk. And so this is the kind of thing that would have forced her into that risk. Mm -hmm. And now that she's not forced, she's going to stay. So there's something it was just sort of interesting, I think, her narrative there of kind of coming to terms with it, thinking maybe it's a good thing. Oh, it's definitely a good thing. And then, oh, actually, I'm still here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she went on a whole journey. And there was something very interesting about when she's talking to Ryan and he's like, is it going to be weird? And she mm -hmm. initially thinks that she he means, you know, um, uh, between Pam and Jim, but he means actually between Ryan and Jim. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but I was 
intrigued by, I'm trying to remember um, how it happens that when, okay, so we see, we hear, is it we hear um, Pam's monologue over Stanford and then it's Jim says he decides he's going to take that job. I think that's how it works, that we're like listening to Pam, but watching Jim or something along those lines. And Pam says, maybe this is good. Finding another job is a pain. There's another annoying boss, another desk. I have to learn everything all over again. So there are reasons to stay. And then the next thing is Jim saying, hey, um, I think I am going to take that job. And Scranton, it's not that bad. So hmm. I was trying to think, like, is the show trying to suggest essentially that Pam's logic, her rationale there is essentially what Jim has decided that he's like, all right, maybe going back, you know, finding another job would be a pain. So rather than learn everything all over again, that's what I'll do. Or or, or we went to think, you know, what she's saying is kind of lying to herself. She really wants Jim and he's he. Yeah, I don't know. What what is it that makes Jim want to take the job? Or what are we meant to think is the reason? It's a good question. I do think probably that we suggested that the thing that Pam is saying is true. I mean, he's got he seems to have kind of a lot of things going on because he's asked if Pam is going to be there. I think he's got complicated feelings about that he says on the one hand to jan he had some tough experiences and he's not he doesn't know if he's ready to reopen that at the same time i think there's still some desire to be near her and at the same time as soon as he's deciding he will take it he's saying to karen you know what scranton isn't that bad and this is after he had recommended he had asked her like why would you move to scranton when you can move to new york mm -hmm. so he's he's both bringing himself closer to pam and also bringing himself closer to karen here mm. yeah i don't know if i like that he told karen to come mm -hmm. it's like is he leading her on yeah yeah it was a good question karen there i think her reaction is so cute and when she says I, I don't know if he's into me but i'm kind of into him so there you go and she has this cute smile you know with her mouth closed like not showing her teeth i think she's very just very cute and very charming in the way that she is reacting to jim yeah i thought that was awesome um i i like that actress i like how she's playing it and i just loved yeah that she's like I mean, it kind of like sets up another will they, won't they, but also undermines it at the same time by being like, yeah, I'm into him. Like there's something yeah. really explicit about it, which is really. Yeah, you're right. That's different. She's just so straightforward about it there with camera there. So there are a lot of things. Yeah. So she's liking him in this, even though. I don't know. Do I like Jim in this episode? Do I hate him in this episode? I think I'm you do. Sure. But I will <laughs> I say hate him. my favorite, let me say my favorite Jim moment is when Andy is talking about yes. how he's going to be okay. If you happen to have this quote, please bring it up and read it. But Andy's talking about how he's going to be okay because the Cornell Alumni Network is so great and they really support each other and he'll probably go back and teach or something. <laughs> so well, I just love it that Andy just thinks 
because he was an undergrad at Cornell. He's going to go teach at Cornell. It is wonderful. <laughs> when Jim then asks afterward, where did you go to college? <laughs> That's my favorite. Oh, I love that part. <laughs> I think that's just a really funny move. I think I really like that type of joke when there's something someone takes really seriously and thinks is a really big deal. And yeah. then that asking them the question to undermine it. I don't know if you've seen the show, the league, but there's yes. this episode, right? When um, Andre, when one of the characters is running the marathon and he's always talking about it. And so his friends keep asking the what, and he's like the marathon, the what, like they don't even know what it is. And so it's so defeating to him. And I just think that that's a really funny way to mess with someone. So for Jim, that was just so perfect. Where did you go to college? I love that. I love And Andy's face is excellent. Um, yes. as, and Andy has another great moment too, when he's like destroying the break room or whatever. And, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to say goodbye. And Andy's like, yeah, you too. Or whatever. Um, I have a bunch of like random th uh, things to to note, but Bring I'm trying. What'd you say? Bring them on. They don't have to be slotted into. Uh, well, one actually was when when Michael goes to the warehouse, and I saw a big golden award or statue in the background. I tried to take a screenshot oh. of it. And when I did, the screenshot like came up black. So they figured out how to like. Prevent oh yeah, were you were you I watching can, it on an iPad or something? Uh, on my Mac on on um Peacock and oh, uh, so yeah, I was gonna I try that to... when I watched the iPad. Yeah, they ban you from screenshots. Oh, uh, I should have taken a picture of my phone. Anyway, my one question I had for you is: Is this a Dundee or is this some other thing? And so maybe we'll have to come back, revise, and regret that. Um, yeah, I need photo. I need photo documentation to look at it. And then in that same scene, uh, Michael says, Noble Daryl. And I wanted to know, is that racist? Daryl? <laughs> like, hey, when does he say that? What is the context? He comes in and he says, uh, like, it's when he runs into him. Um, uh, Daryl says, hey, Mike. And Michael says, Daryl, Noble Daryl. <laughs> and then later he says so you'll be okay too you're a warrior you're smart capable you'll find something else and that's one uh, i just wrote in my notes noble racist <laughs> like the noble savage trope <laughs> yeah i guess i don't know i was just like yeah yeah or like giving nobility to people who you think are lower than you right <laughs> right move because noble is such a um such a unique word and it does feel like there's a kind of cultural baggage attached to that word and how nobility gets kind of distributed out totally. what's interesting this is related to maybe hostility to daryl or kind of underlying hostility to daryl it's right after michael talks to him that he gets more fired up and he makes a plan so right after he hears That's from Daryl, interesting he's keeping his job the warehouse is all keeping their job and that bob vance is buying his garage <laughs> yeah describes it so i don't know to what extent that has to do with daryl or to what extent it has to do with bob vance coming in and buying things out from under him and sort of feeling defeated but it's like it cuts them the next interview right after that conversation with daryl is where he is very energized and riled up and he is going to go that's a fascinating he's not, gonna lay, he's not gonna lay down take this lying down but he is going to fight it 
Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. Um, it's just like watching him, uh, watching him make his plan is very funny. Um, I'm just gonna keep jumping to random shit unless you have places you got. Okay. Um, well, when Phyllis is like, "Let's go out to eat," and they're trying to decide where, mm-hmm. um, I, is it Angela that says, "I don't want to go to Dunmore." Um, yeah, she says, "I don't go." Okay, he says, "Okay." She suggests DJs. Kevin wants Caginos. She says, I don't want to go to all the way to Dunmore. So I mm-hmm. looked up Dunmore and Dunmore is an eight minute drive from Scranton. It is 2.5 miles away. <laughs> That's hilarious. Tyler, I love the work you do with maps for this. Podcast. <laughs> I'm just really interested in the geography of Pennsylvania. As You've Nick- given me a geographical and spatial sense of this show that I never would have come to before. It's only two and a half miles away. That's hilarious. It's so... I thought that was very funny. Yeah, very funny. Um, Okay, good detail. What else you got? Uh, Okay. Um, well, in my notes, I had listed of other things about Stanford that I think make it look fancier. In addition to the frosted glass, the floor is checkered and there's no carpet. And yeah. all of the lighting is lamp lamp lighting, like floor lighting. Um. Oh, so it's that, all lamps. Huh. It seems well, they definitely still have like fluorescent overheads, but a lot of the lighting. A lot of lamps. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I don't care. The checkerboard floor, I think that's part of what makes the office look so busy and so chaotic. It's not a night, nice, but like that's the thing. It's not like a nice checker. It's like there are too big, the squares are too big, and it's not black and white as far as I could tell. It looked more yeah. kind of red like or something or brown. It's yeah, it's not very attractive. And because there's so much clutter on their desks and everywhere, it's not a good look. This is the first episode where I started to wonder how many people are on the camera crew that's filming them because um in the scene where Michael and Jan are talking, it almost seems like there's two separate cameras in that scene. Oh, that's um, a good point. So they can do the cut back and forth. Yeah, and the closeness on Michael is really interesting. And then later, um, Dwight prevents the camera crew from coming in to the scene with Toby, so we don't see that. I just found that very funny. But then later, when Josh reveals the truth to Jim and Jan, mm-hmm. um, the, there is one camera inside, and then there is a camera outside behind them, and it cuts between the two. And I just mm-hmm. thought that was such an interesting choice that, like, when we cut to Josh, we're actually often from outside of the office itself looking through the blinds over Jan's shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, maybe it wouldn't make sense spatially that it would be too narrow for a camera person to be right there, but and it wouldn't let for the wide shot, but still it was just an interesting choice for such a dramatic scene to be cutting in and out of the office. Like literally that, that one room, but then yeah, um, yeah. hearing the audio just fine. I thought that was interesting. I thought that you mentioned the blinds looking through the blinds and we talked about the aesthetics of the blinds last time and how I have the very strong preference for the horizontal versus the vertical blinds of Stanford. And there's a scene when, Roy is in the kitchen and he's looking through and watching Pam through the blinds. And it feels like the blinds actually do a lot in this yes. show. Yes. Even though you can see through them, it establishes the kind of voyeurism of looking 
through them and just the way that it ends up hiding some of a character while also showing them there's just so central to the show actually that's such a great we need a yeah a theory of the blinds is i'm loving your like they conceal and reveal they draw close they keep it at distance that's so i love this this is where I also actually, there was a, a shot when Michael was sitting in front of his window, which has blinds and being interviewed. And I thought there would be another potential tattoo for me. Although mm. of it could be weird, but of his, his head kind of outlined with the blinds behind him. Oh my God. That's brilliant. Um, in that scene with Jan and Josh, uh, Jim's face is so awkward. I tried to get a picture of that for you as well, but he is like so visibly yes. uncomfortable. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like, can you imagine being Jim yeah. in that scene? Yes, that is an uncomfortable interaction. But speaking of awkward faces, I can't believe I haven't mentioned it until now, but we get the classic office meme, the 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 gif of Michael when he... Wait. You say GIF. You're a GIF guy, not a GIF guy. I say GIF in real life, but I thought people would write in and be mad at me if I use the wrong term. <laughs> so that's why I, I'm desperate to believe that people pleasing is somehow anti-capitalist because I'm just. <laughs> but no, I say GIF. What do you say? GIF. Wait, no, I say GIF. That's what I said. Oh, God, now I'm confused. This anyway. Where I never know what you're kind of supposed to say, so I feel like you always have to say both. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. Uh, what else is this? Anyways, sorry, I cut you off. The classic. The meme. So the meme is with Michael when he says, this is the worst, and he's like got the, you know, oh, that grimace. That pained, pained it's face. It's amazing. Face. And what's That's so interesting amazing. about it is that um because Angela says, Do we still have jobs? And he says, I don't know. This is the worst. And it's like partly him processing that Toby knew. And it's partly, <laughs> yes. but whenever I use that GIF or have seen people use it, I always think that it's about like um cringing or like awkward, that it's awkward. Whereas like what oh. he's expressing there is like you said, like anguish. And I just thought it was an interesting thing to see wow. and to for us to think about which moments become memeable and why, and like how they get detached from the narrative yes. context. So it's actually getting used wrongly. It does not signify the thing that it has come to signify. It is detached from its original signifier or whatever. Yeah, it's kind of, I thought it was kind of shocking to see it in context. That is such an interesting thing. Yeah, how it breaks away from its original context and then ends up doing something very different. Do you think it's an this is like a key meme in the is it in the Hall of Fame of office memes or no? Yeah, probably. I don't think it's as big as the one that I feel like I rely on most heavily when Michael says, "No, please God, no." <laughs> I think I sent that to somebody. I think it's also Toby, a Toby-related moment. Um, but anyway, Tyler, I have one final question for you before we go to the Dundies. And that is, do you really think Toby could learn to surf? <laughs> and I mean this, so Toby says that, you know, if he left, he would have gone to Costa Rica and learned to surf. I don't mean this at a physical level, like evaluating whether he's physically capable. I mean at a personality level. Say more. What personality do you need to surf? Confidence? I don't know. Not Toby's. Yeah, confidence. Um, 
I don't know, adventurousness, willingness to take a risk, um, comfort in water. <laughs> it doesn't look like, you know, like a guy who's comfortable in water. Comfortable in water. <laughs> what do you think? No, I, I, I was shocked when I was like, that's what he wants to do in Costa Rica. Yeah. But I, man, I love Toby and I was like, I relate. I mean, I think I relate to Toby in so many ways, but among them, like this, uh, uh, yeah, he has this fantasy that is not actually probably who he is, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> I like to think that I would be much more, I like to, I like to imagine myself as much more adventurous than I am. <laughs> And then when I find myself in adventurous situations, I'm like, fuck this. Like, why? You know, and, uh, so I think maybe that was that was funny to me was his kind of like what his life could be if he wasn't working this boring ass job or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But I had a question for you, actually, about Toby in this episode. Oh. What is his reaction to Meredith? Is he like disappointed? Is he uh, like, should I report this to HR? Like, what is he thinking? I don't know. I don't remember it well enough. I have to go back. All right. Put it on for revisions and regrets. Okay. Revisions and regrets. Okay. How does Toby react? That's a great question. Do you have thoughts? Uh, I, my initial thought was like, is he like bewildered and like, thinking like, oh, that's inappropriate, but I don't care. Or was he, but then I thought like, maybe he's thinking like, oh, I should have said yes. Hmm. So that I could have gotten like, I don't, I don't know. Everybody's reaction to Meredith really confuses me. <laughs> like we all <laughs> seem like really grossed out by her or something. So I can't, yeah. couldn't put, could have put a finger on it. Yeah. Michael's. <laughs> yeah. We can come all have to review and we can, we can come back to that. Uh, I'm just going to point out three quick things and then we can jump to the Dundies if you want. Uh, yes, I just good. really enjoyed Michael's line about um, show me that farm. Uh, yes. <laughs> right for the plucking uh, of Stanley's and Phyllis's. I thought that was funny. Yeah, he delivers uh, it with such drama. Show me that farm. Um, Dwight and Michael are drinking like off-brand blue Gatorade, I believe. Yes. I love it that they're drinking Gatorade. It's the way they're, they are treating this thing as such a mission yeah. and they need to replenish their fluids. Replenish the fluids. And Michael wipes his wipes it with the tie, which is great. And I'm pretty sure they're eating Funyuns uh, in the car, but I couldn't. Yes. Yes. Okay. They do have Funyuns on the dashboard. We, oh, okay. And then finally, uh, it, I would be remiss without pointing out that Michael Scott's ringtones uh, for his cell phone is my humps. Uh, from the Black Eyed Peas. My lovely lady loves. <laughs> I wonder how many times through the show Michael's cell phone ring changes because it's been Mambo number five. Oh, I forgot. Remember the fire? Oh, gosh. Yes. Does he always have a song? Well, Mambo number five at the time, like he was too, he was Wait, late. Was this that. Mambo number five? Am I getting it wrong? Because I Googled it. Oh, you got it right. Is no, because right, okay. this one is like do 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 do. That's it. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I forgot to re-listen to you know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. That's right. Mambo, Mambo number five was was always back. Well, I'm very curious who your Dundee is going to. I forgot to think of one uh, <laughs> beforehand, and so 
Yeah, where are you at? Where's your, where, where, what's your Dundee? I have struggled with this Dundee. I, oof, I don't know. I still, I, I'm still struggling at this well, point. But I think you've persuaded me ooh. over the course of this episode that my Dundee should go to Michael Scott. What? <laughs> and I think I want to call this the Indiana Jones Award. Um, <laughs> I think in this episode, Michael is brave and he is kind and he might be useless, but he tries really hard and he really shows that he's better than Josh. Um. Well, I'm going to have a can i have a runner up i'm gonna have a runner up you can always have a runner up um and this is the uh uh i don't know um the community award and this goes to phyllis um because i really like that she was like let's all go out you know and have one last hurrah yeah you know, she's yeah. the only one who seems to be thinking about the office as a community you know i guess besides michael but mm -hmm. i thought that was sweet even though she's like we're never going to see each other again um yeah. so that's my runner-up but the true standout here mm -hmm. goes to the not the community award it's the commuter award oh. and that goes to jan levinson gould <laughs> Uh, just Jan Levinson, Jan Levinson. <laughs> um, who drove like something like 400 miles uh, as she recounts um, driving between Connecticut and Stan uh, uh, Pennsylvania and she tries really hard to uh, like let Michael down easy and then she's like you know even willing to sort of give him credit <laughs> in a way she's like it doesn't matter how things happen whatever yeah um, but i thought it was really lovely where she tries to keep uh jim and she's like you know we'll do whatever yeah. we can um to make you happy or we whatever, yeah. whatever we can to get you to stay and i thought um and she's genuinely hurt by josh's actions and yes i think she's certainly management and uh and we shouldn't you know praise and trust her too much but i felt like she did a lot of hard work <laughs> to yeah. try to keep things going uh and uh and i just felt bad for how much driving she had to do so she did do a lot of driving tyler i i wish i had given my dundee to jan but i feel like i've made my commitment but i think that was a very persuasive case i want to give one other brief honorable mention this is not dundee worthy but i did want to point out that David Wallace has a dog who is looking through the gate when Dwight is digging through the trash. It's a golden retriever. It's just this very cute looking dog <laughs> watching Dwight do his work as he's talking about David using um, coffee grounds to prevent drug sniffing dogs. I don't know why the dog is out in the yard when apparently nobody's home. I thought that was a little bit suspect yeah like, that's a good like, question was someone actually in there that dog isn't just outside all day um right. so that was that was a question really about the dog situation but but it was just a very very cute little guy so i wanted to point point that out well uh this has been great we will see you all next time uh for season three episode eight the merger mm-hmm so I'm excited to see, I guess we'll see the future of yes. Stanford's uh, closing. Mm-hmm.
future of Dunder Mifflin. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.